When Israel was in slavery in Egypt, you remember this, the night of the Exodus, they had been instructed to slay a perfect lamb, paint the blood on the lintels of the door and the side posts, which, by the way, forms the cross. And then remain inside the house until morning. And we are told on that night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. That's what that was all about. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 12 and 13. This is the historical root of the Jewish celebration of Passover. The Jews celebrate that time when God passed over their house and did not strike down the firstborn of their homes. Why not? Because the slain lamb had died in their place and took the judgment for them. Now what do we know about the timing of Jesus' crucifixion? All the gospel accounts tell us that it occurred at, get it now, Passover. Passover. John writes, it was just before the Passover feast Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. John 13, verse 1. The other gospel accounts tell us of how Jesus sent his disciples off to locate an upper room where he could celebrate the Passover with them. They tell of how Jesus took the bread and the wine at the Passover dinner and he read new meaning into the symbols saying, take and eat, this is my body. And again, this is my cup. Eat of this bread, drink of this cup. This is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26 26 and 27. May I say the door post for Jesus was his cross. In which his own blood became the payment of judgment. Which God sees and passes over all who are protected by faith in his blood. This is why Paul told the Corinthian church. Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. This is why God speaks of Jesus as the Lamb slain from the creation of the world. The cross was not an afterthought, but the very reason Jesus came into our world. And so wherever John writes of Jesus in the Revelation... He makes repeated references to Christ as the slain lamb. Revelation 5, 6. When I saw the lamb 
looking as if he had been slain. Verse 8, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Why? To worship him, saying, verse 9, you are its, you are worthy of the, taking the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And again, verse 12, in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It's the slain Lamb, the slain Lamb, the slain Lamb that John writes about. And when John reports on the people standing there in white robes, the answer he received, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Of the Lamb. Say, well, that doesn't make sense. We know blood is red and how can you wash a robe white in the blood of the Lamb? It's talking about the washing away of sin, blackness of sin. Similar thought in 12 verse 11, which says that they overcame their accuser, that would be Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. There are nearly another dozen references in the book of Revelation to Jesus being the Lamb of God. And they all are connected with his cross work. Now that's a lot in one book. 11, 12 references. Does any of this sound like coincidence? Or that Jesus was a victim of his cross work? Only the spiritually blind would conclude that. His purpose for coming was the crossword. He wasn't caught unawares. He wasn't a victim in that sense. Men didn't just grab a hold of him because they could. Second, Jesus knew himself that his mission was the cross and remained steadfast to the course set down by his father. The writer of the book of Hebrews has an interesting quote from Psalm 40, verse 6 and following, in which he attributes a prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. The prophecy is Hebrews 10, verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, that's referring to the animal sacrifices, but a body you prepared for me. Yeah. With burnt offerings, sin offerings, again reference to the animals, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It's, a written, it's written about me in the book, in the Bible. I have come to do your will, O God. Here's the writer's explanation of what this means. He notes that God did not desire sin offerings of animals, nor was he pleased by them, though he did ordain them at the time. So God set aside the old covenant with all of those animals and he established the new covenant in Christ's blood 
And we are told, by that will, by that decision, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the animals? No. Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Wow. Day after day, every priest stands there before his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That is those animal sacrifices. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all times one sacrifice for sins, that is himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. By that sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10, verse 8 and following. Wow. One sacrifice versus thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices. They could never take away sins. His one sacrifice. Oh yeah. Could do it. Jesus knew why he had come into the world. Again, after that marvelous confession of Peter about Jesus, which we studied the last week, last week, Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Luke's account adds this little note. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Luke 9, verse 22. And in the same chapter, verse 44, he says, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Listen to the details of Luke 18, verse 31 and following. We are going up to Jerusalem, said Jesus, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Here's the detail. This is Jesus speaking. He speaks of himself in the third. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. On the third day he will rise again. And the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. But he said it. You understand. He predicted it. Went right over their head. Because those kind of things are understood by the Spirit of God and God didn't disclose it to them. They didn't know, but Jesus did because his coming into the world from the start was to go to the cross. The Holy Spirit sustained him in his flogging. The attempts at stoning because it wasn't a Roman whip or stoning that was going to take his life. It was going to be the cross. 
So my question is, what did the cross, <clears throat> excuse me, what did the cross accomplish? Or to say it another way, why the cross? Well, our text, verse 13 and 14, says redemption. Redemption is not a term we use very much in our day, but it still has meaning in certain circles. For example, if a person were to become financially strapped to the point where they didn't have any money for food or clothing, pay the bills, they might be forced to borrow money on some valuable asset, a diamond bracelet maybe, a ruby ring, an expensive watch, a camera. Almost anything of value could be taken to a pawn shop in Flint, Michigan, or down in Detroit, and the proprietor would give that person a sum of money, usually a pittance of what it's worth, but they would give him a sum of money for the article. And along with it, you would get a receipt relating to a time frame in which the borrower could come back to the pawn shop and redeem the article by paying back the money that he had received plus interest. Oh yeah, you got to get the interest. In the spiritual arena, all of mankind is bankrupt by sin. We're locked away captive in the pawn shop of slavery to Satan, the world our own sinful nature and will. We did this to ourselves, by the way. And we are held captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies, says Paul, which we imbibe from the liars of the world, verse 8. There's no extrication from our plight by ourselves. We're in sin, we love it there, we're com comfortable there. Sin is an abode that we are in from birth on. In Adam, Paul says, all die. In Adam. But Christ, who is the fullness of deity in bodily form, and who is the head over every power and authority, verse 10, comes to the prison house where we are dead in sin, verse 13, where we are held captive, and he redeems us. He makes us alive with Christ, verse 13. In doing this, he forgives us all of our sins. He cancels, canceling the written code, our debt to the law. How's he do that? By paying the debt off. Himself, nailing it to the cross, verse 14. This is why the cross. There's a debt that Christ is paying. Your debt, my debt, if we're believers. Paul writes it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that 
the blessing might be given to Abraham, that was given to Abraham, might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Galatians 3, verse 13 and 14. Or Peter put it this way, You know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 1 Peter 1.18 In other words, no monetary payment <laughs> of silver and gold could redeem us. It took the death of Christ to redeem us. That's how dire our predicament was. Second accomplishment of the cross is stated in verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Powers and authorities stand for what? The spiritual enemies of our soul, Satan, the demons. Who entice men to sin. And for those Paul calls the enemies of the cross. Certainly in his day Herod, Pontius Pilate. Others in authority as well as unbelievers. Which are everywhere. How is the cross triumphant? (laughs) Because it accomplished the redemption of God's people right in the midst of Satan and God's enemies doing their worst. Satan was pleased to incite the religious leaders to jealousy over Jesus. The scriptures say, he even entered Judas, the betrayer. Luke 22, verse 3, for his wicked betrayal. Lots of satanic, demonic activity going on that day but it wasn't Satan's will that was done that day it was God's Satan and the powers that be while doing their worst without any coercion by God God wasn't making them do this nonetheless God accomplished the will of God in the cross Scripture says, this man, referring to Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep a hold of him. Acts 2, verse 23 and following. Brethren, this is the great work of the cross. Christ slays the slayer. He captures the captors. He sets the prisoners free. Because he lives, we who believe 
are raised with him through faith in the power of God. Verse 12, we're made alive. Verse 13, we're living in him. Verse 6, that's the cross and the power of it. So God did it all. We could say it this way. He sent his son on a rescue mission. And you and I who believe were the subjects of that rescue. Isn't that something to praise the Lord about? What did we, what did we do to be, deserve being rescued? I'd like to know. Born sinners, living as sinners. We would die as sinners were it not for the intervention of Christ. But he does intervene and he comes in. Not with silver and gold. No tangible things like that. But with his precious blood, with his own death. He substituted himself. That's what the cross is about. He substituted himself for all who will believe in him. Do you believe this morning? Have you trusted Christ? Father, we thank you for your word. Pray your blessing upon it. How precious is the story of the cross. We perhaps have had it so long in our history that we kind of gloss over it, but I hope we won't. May we always be mindful of the cross, what it costs God to redeem us. It wasn't a bag of money. It wasn't jewels. It wasn't even an animal sacrifice. It was the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, the very Son of God. That's who he gave to redeem us. I would think all of us could understand the importance of what a son would be to us and our family. How much more precious was God's perfect son to the perfect God? Yet he was willing to sacrifice his perfect sinless son for scum like us. What for? So that we could become part of his family and be united with him forever in heavenly glory. Who loves like that? No, nobody I know loves like that. But God did. And we thank you, Lord, today. We're humbled by this. In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal number 471. Let's stand as we sing. 471 in the hymnal.
And by the way, it's the only road that leads home. For all the religions in the world, just think about them. There are hundreds. Do you know in, in the Indians, and in, I'm thinking of India, have over 5,000 deities in their pantheon of gods. Oh, that they could just see one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess who they're going to stand before someday? It isn't 5,000 deities. It's the one God. Well, they got him in there too. He's in their pantheon. But they've missed the royalty, the supremacy of his deity, the uniqueness of his deity. There's only one Savior. And that can be said to all the religions of the world. So, well, aren't you saying something that uh, is pretty uh, egotistical? You mean there's only one religion? No, no, there's only one Savior. And he is espoused in the Christian faith. And not everything that says it's Christian either. So you have to be discerning. But you're not in a sea of uncertainty. God has written a whole book about the coming of his son and then the life of his son. He does warn that in the end times there are going to be multiple Christs. And those Christs are going to be able to do deceptive counterfeit miracles, says Paul. Yeah, but this book also reveals the true Christ and gives us the wherewithal to be able to see past the facade of the fakes and the counterfeits and all of that. Got to be in a gospel preaching church where the truth of Jesus is proclaimed. Thank you for all coming today, for being faithful to the preaching of the gospel. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its strong statement of the deity of Christ and the uniqueness it places on Christ. There aren't many saviors, many messiahs. No, no. There's just your son, unique as he is. And you have promised that he is going to return. And when he does return, every eye will see him, the scripture says. Every knee will bow down before him. Every tongue will confess, yes, he is Lord, to the praise of God the Father. But there will also be judgment for the unbelieving because of the witness that's been evident for centuries, which has been ignored or spit upon or denied or ridiculed or belittled. Oh Lord, help us not to do that this morning. Make us believers. And I say that positive believers living out our faith in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. We're dismissed.